Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. We are recording another episode of EMS on the Mountain. From the Mountain, we are on duty this weekend, recording from the mighty ambulance bay, looking out upon a glorious scenic evening here in the wilds of the woods. Yeah, it's the first time recording video too, and I may or may not post this, but I guess we'll see what happens. People don't want to see this. I don't want to see it. <laughs> You're such a broken human. All right. So, All right, ladies and gentlemen. So today's topic, advanced airway management in the backcountry. So I guess start off with this should come as no shock. But airway management is airway management. It doesn't really matter where you're at. If they need airway management, do airway management. But Sean, if airway management is just airway management, and this is a wilderness EMS podcast, why are we talking about it? Because, Michael, it's worth mentioning. There are some differences, like many aspects of wilderness EMS, as compared to our urban counterparts. Holy cannoli, sir. All right. So I think... By the way, if you can tell folks, this is a bit of a freeform discussion and very much. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. This may never make it to the interwebs. Who oh, knows? This will make it. So, big one, obviously, standard airway progression rules apply. We want to start off BLS before ALS for all of our friends out there that love that saying. Not that we don't, it's just it's getting a bit overused. So, but in the wilderness, you should definitely BLS and then BLS again before you ALS an airway. Right. So big one, obviously in the woods. Yeah. Positioning. Mike has this highlighted a lot. Positioning is key. People taking tumbles and spills. And we're talking about like while in the woods, not having been evacuated to an ambulance or a stretcher or a cot, yeah. but like we're in, in the woods, in the woods somewhere, find their bodies oftentimes in strange and contorted positions from whence they derived their injuries. Yeah, so, it's not the best. Yeah. Airway positioning is, is key. So Got to get on that. Obviously, if there are spinal precautions to be made, which I will not jump on my soapbox, but obviously make those considerations, but you got to position the airway. And then if positioning doesn't work, then where do we go, Mike? Well, we're going downhill fast, Sean. (laughs) Because uh, if positioning's not working, then we're... Right. So we're definitely dancing into the NPA, OPA realm right right away. We're looking at doing our, uh, our BLS level. Yep. Uh, airway sure. adjuncts, BLS, or excuse me, uh, NPAs, OPAs, so either nasal or oral. Now, obviously, if you're able to insert an oral airway and your patient does not try to give that back to you, plus stomach contents, you should you're probably start considering moving to the advanced airway section, which is where we're going to really concentrate most of our talk tonight. And this is where it gets problematic. Ah. It's right here. This is not the, oh, well, we're paramedics. We're just going to intubate. There is some complexities to this, right? And the complexity is not necessarily in the, the act of the insertion and selection of your correct airway device, whatever it is. It's the time you have to manage it. So as you guys all know, if you've listened to us long enough, you know Mike and I both also ride urban ambulances and pretty regular fire-based EMS services. And the decision intubate or use any other advanced airway, superglottic, et cetera, is really pretty much a no-brainer. It's like, well, we need better management, so we skip right to it because you have 
a lot more hands available who are trained hands, let's put it, especially, you know, for mechanized areas. Work. And a mechanized vehicle to transport and them and yourself while doing airway that's management. That's what I say. You got a lot of hands to pick people up, put them on your, you know, yep. your motorized cot and lift them into your ambulance and drive, depending on where you're at, a few minutes to a hospital where you can turn them over and get more advanced care. Problem we run into in the woods for those who work in the wilderness and austere environments is again the time factor. That one thing that separates this from all other emergency medical services offerings out there is the wilderness and austere environment is the time you're with that patient. So we've worked our BLS airways. If you put in an NPA, it's working, it's keeping the tongue off. They're able to maintain their own airway, they're respirating accordingly. Uh, ventilations are going great. Awesome. Good day. Let it run. But if you've gotten to the point, and we want to make this clear, we're advocating that you try to run your BLS and basic airway management for as long as you can. But if you're approaching that point where you need to go to more advanced stuff, don't keep hesitating waiting on BLS stuff to work. If it's not working, go to the advanced stuff, right? Like we're certainly not saying, well, wait until it's almost too late and then go it. You know, we don't want to wait till the anoxic brain injury has occurred and then decide to do something, right? So you've got to make that decision early as you basically, as soon as you identify the need, you've got to make the action, right? Once you've identified the need to move to an advanced adjunct, it's time to go because clearly your basic maneuvers and devices haven't been working. So what about bagging them? Well, bagging them works and we lump that in with the BLS skills, but what we're getting to, and this is where a lot of this discussion is going to circle around a lot is the time, right? How long you can't. Are that's you, the kicker. Right? That's the thing is, how long do you think you're going to be able to bag someone who requires assisted ventilations? And this is the key. And what, and again, not that a lot of people make comments on our stuff, which all six of our listeners do. Yeah, two of them. But <laughs> to circle back around and put us back on track, trying to bag someone for 15 or 20, 30 minutes, maybe, I mean, maybe a rural transport out there, 45 minutes an hour is not as problematic as four hours plus anywhere. And again, Mike and I's experience from where we are up to 18 possible hours. Oh, so I'm going to disagree with that one. I don't believe anybody is doing a good 40 minutes of bagging. Well, I will agree with that too. I'm just saying. If you're bagging somebody for 40 minutes, you better have three or four providers, right? You got to be rotating the bag manager. They should be doing nothing but squeezing the bag. You need somebody else keeping a good seal. The reality is in any EMS environment, if we're going to manage an airway for more than 10 or 15 minutes, we're probably dropping in superglottic airway, if not intubating at a minimum, right? So I still carry a bag valve mask in the woods. Oh, yeah. I carry one of them compact jammers that fits in the nice little plastic case. Kid who makes them. I think it's uh, NAR. Yeah, I know they sell them at least. But that's really just, it's a bridge. Yes, absolutely. And something else you got to keep in mind, and I know there are some, some wilderness response groups that bring oxygen. They've invested, they've got good carbon fiber tanks. Mm-hmm. The trick is your standard D or jumbo D is not getting you a lot of time. No. For somebody that truly needs supplemental oxygen, it's not two liters a minute. So you can extend that tank for a long time, right? It's somebody that really needs supplemental oxygen. So a lot of times when you're doing, when you're bagging someone, it's usually just with ambient room air as mm-hmm. it were. It's, it's very difficult to maintain a steady supply of six, eight, 10 D cylinders out into the woods, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying the reality and the logistics of that. I've done it. it. I mean, I've carried four tanks of oxygen into the woods before. It, it sucks. It, it sucks. 
but those were steel, so God bless him. Mm -hmm. But how long did four cylinders last you? We never used them, but (laughs) we were headed toward an unconscious individual, and I wasn't sure if they were breathing, and so I carried it. I didn't carry much else, and it turned out we didn't need it, but there just isn't an opportunity to carry a large supply of oxygen. And that's the thing is you might get a couple of tanks out there with you. I know all of our, the primary the bags that are preset for the BLS backcountry response all have carbon fiber O2 tanks, tanks in them, them. Yep. right? So they, responders can grab those and you're going, you should get a couple mm-hmm. if they bring those bags appropriately and they didn't take it out because that thing's big and heavy, right? That's why there's the carbon fiber ones in there and the steel ones and, or aluminum ones are on the ambulance and inside vehicles, not in the backcountry kits. Uh, so what we're saying is O2 might be available to you but it's going to be possibly short-lived depending on your access to additional tanks and the ability for people to ferry them out to you. If you work in a small, very remote area, you might only have three or four cylinders at your avail regardless. Yeah, good luck. you're going to burn through those fairly quickly. So The reality is that anybody that needs airway management, no matter how minor, is an immediate air evacuation if possible. And Correct. the minute you're in a place where you're doing any sort of airway intervention or managing or helping breathing, anything like that, if you can't get them out very, very quickly, you're in a bad spot. I don't care if they're innovated or not. No. Right? So, which circles us back around. We've done our BLS work. It's not getting the job done. So we've decided we have to go to the advanced airway. And we are including superglottics in the advanced airway scheme, although that's found its way into a lot of BLS, a lot of BLS protocols. And I think rightly so. Mm-hmm. It's a blind airway. I mean, come on. I know in my urban jurisdiction, it's EMTs can drop superglottics and I put them to work with it all the time. No one's killed a person with it yet. Yet. I mean, I'm not saying it's without its complications, but for all intents and purposes, uh, superglottics, we're going to count as our advanced airways. So once you've decided you're going that route and your patient's in such a condition and we'll count intubation in this too, right? We're saying once you've done one of these two, and it doesn't matter how you got your intubation route, whether you RSI'd in the field, their mental status was such that you wasn't an issue, you know, that GCS of less than eight, let's intubate, right? They, they didn't fight it. You put it in, you know, maybe their GCS was three and there was not really a need to have to paralyze, then sedate. You went for it, you got a tube, doesn't matter. So they're intubated or they've got a supergladic in place. There's a lot more movement in the wellness environment, in the evacuation phase, even if you're only having to move what we'll call a relatively short distance to maybe a landing zone for a helicopter. I don't care if it's 30 yards, but it'll get dislodged. Dislodgement is a very, very real concern. I mean, it's a very real concern on the urban side. Think about patients you've seen that have moved up or down stairs Mm -hmm. and you've had to, obviously, if you're, you're, we'll say, a competent provider, you're checking to placement before the move and right after the move Mm -hmm. uh, because you got to find that stuff early before you kill someone. And so with this, yeah, if you're doing hoisting, pushing up, over, around things, dislodgement's a very real concern, and you've got to be very aware of it and constantly checking. If you have portable capnography, such as the EMMA device, fantastic. Put that stuff to use. If not, you better find something, right? So that you know for a fact that and even if you're having to go old school, like I have fogging in my tube uh, because there's absolutely nothing liquid that could fog a tube no, from your tube will fog stomach. with the stomach too. Do not use t- tube <laughs> fogging, right? At an absolute minimum, you need a it's, color metric device. It's color metrics and have several and yeah. old school lung sounds and legit. Make sure you get real lung sounds, not just you heard a noise. Yep. So also follow your local protocols. 
Well, yeah, that's that's always the caveat is we are not a substitute for your local medical direction. Please follow your local rules. I'm not even a substitute for pretty good paramedic. I just that's record true. stuff. I am the okayest one. Yeah. So dislodgement is a concern. So you've got to be aware of that. So you'll find in the wellness places, people will use a traditional commercial grade tube tamer holder, whatever you want to call it, and then supplement that with sometimes an excessive amount of tape. tape. But yeah, uh, uh, so it is I'm going to say is. something controversial now. Please do. I love being controversial. This is one of them there times that if you can intubate them and you have the equipment and the skills, you should. Mm. You know, tube tamers are certainly important. Seat collars, if you have them. We want to keep movement. The goal here is to keep movement as minimal as possible. Mm-hmm. If I had to use super, well, my experience with superglottic area so far, which is a couple years here or there, but overall, the amount of movement that occurs the minute you put somebody on a trail in a Stokes or even mm-hmm. getting hoisted into a helicopter in a wilderness environment, the potential for movement makes things like eye gels mm-hmm. very, very prone for to dislodgement. Yeah. I do know, I, I won't name names, but I do know of one system right now that is moving away from IGELs and back to King Airways, period. The IGELs are coming off the units because they're finding that there's too much, the, the rate of dislodgement has gone up after they had gone to IGELs. Yeah. IGELs are a great tool. I love them. Even if you secure the heck out of them, though, it's just sitting on top of the airway. Yes. Yeah, so right. Yeah. The very design of a superglottic makes it is to sit superglottically. Difficult for it to stay. The king is a little bit better in that it's got balloons, right? And two venting options. And two venting options. But, I mean, the gold standard is still intubation. Absolutely. You still have to secure the tube. You have to do all of those things. But just in the way the anatomy works, that is your best bet Mm -hmm. to avoid dislodgement of all the options. And because the wilderness environment primarily introduces a lot more movement, movement equates dislodgement. I mean, I know we have some listeners, some folks that would disagree with me on this whole thing. (laughs) What up? (laughs) But I am of the opinion that maintaining your skill set is a critical requirement of a paramedic and a paramedic should be able to intubate somebody if they have to move them in the woods. Because if you're that bad off, we're going to get to ventilations in a second. But if you're that bad off, the only chance that person has, if they have a chance at all, is your advanced skill set in managing airway. And that includes intubation, includes ventilator management, includes planning, all the calculations that come into it. So. It's not going to be popular, but in intubation or heaven forbid, in a civilian setting, a crike, I'm just, I don't love the amount of potential for dislodging superglottic airways once you're Mm. in a basket bouncing down the trail trying to get somebody out. Well, which brings us to the next point of discussion is if you're, especially if you're having to do the manual carry out and you've had to place that advanced airway or you're, you're having to bag your patient walking while a Stokes is being carried and effectively bagging your patient, it's damn near impossible. Is extremely difficult to do. In just in training purposes, you know, we've put mannequins in Stokes and had people walk on paved, smooth areas and said, "Keep up with your stuff." And the problem is, is especially in wilderness environments, particularly where you have to keep your feet on the trail before you stumble and fall and hold on to that bag valve mask and pull your tube out with it. It's very difficult for you to maintain solid BVM ventilations while you're walking yeah, down a trail, maintaining that, that one breath every whatever you've decided to ventilate at rate. It's, it's incredibly difficult. This is where Mike and I are both in, surprisingly, very strong agreement here is, is if you have to do this, the use of portable mechanical ventilation devices 
is almost a requirement for yep. you. You really, it's, it's one of those things we would love. Our agency doesn't have them and we would love for them to get, just get us one uh, because this is a very, you know, for us at least where we work a very low frequency type of thing. But when it happens, my God, like me trying to bag you for six hours going down a trail because it's going to be a very slow carry out and not if it's, uh, and we'll get into some other issues in a minute too with this, but you need to have some sort of portable mechanical ventilator with you. You cannot, nobody can bag effectively and walk down a trail. Yeah. So you just it's, can't. And I don't care. Now, what, there are some tricks out there. Like you can put a short piece of, of vent tubing on the end of a bag valve mask. It gives you some flexibility. Yes. It's awesome. But the reality is that there isn't a lot of room if there's six people operating or motating a stove, whatever the right word is. It's not motate, but I like to make stuff up. Motown. Carry. We'll go with Car carry. carry. Well, it's not really carry, right? Because if it's on a wheel, you're well, just... Well, if you're using a wheel, yeah. but I'll still call that being carry. There isn't a lot of room for somebody to be at the head, just holding a bag, squeezing it every once every six seconds. And the reality is the people that have their hands on the stokes are not in a position to keep track and count Oh, yeah. And squeeze properly. It's yeah. just not happening. They're so, just trying not to fall over and tip your patient in the basket. This is one of those situations where if you have to provide ventilatory support, you're really like, you got to get to like a safe two or yeah, like I, a Zoll or something. You just have to, right? And it sucks. And they're all heavy. I mean, safe tubes aren't that big, but mm -hmm. they're heavy and they're complex and they're less than ideal. But there is no good way to bag somebody and walk at the same time yeah. on a trail. They're just not in my opinion. No. There just isn't. No, I mean, for those of you, our urban paramedic friends who've done maybe a cardiac arrest and you've had intermittent ROS, whatever your protocol is, and you're ended up transporting and you're still having to bag, think about if you're not using vents, just transitioning from the back of the ambulance, out of the unit, yep. onto the sidewalk, into the ED, transferring to bed, and still maintaining your ventilations, right? You know there's gaps. We all know there's gaps, right? It just happens. And nobody's maintaining any sort of thought process of around. Like, oh no, I, I'm always getting yeah. it. It's like, are you, are you, are you? Well, like, even if, even if the bag volume, is getting squeezed, nobody is thinking about, is it the right amount of volume? Nobody's watching volume, for chest rate, rise. Yeah, no, yeah right. none of it. Right. So let's, yeah, don't, don't delude yourselves into thinking that you've done perfect ventilation the entire time. You right? might be the best ventilator ever. And I'm still going to say it right now, right? This, this is going to feel <laughs> a little EMS 2020, right? You might be the best ventilator. Like you are the best manual ventilation monkey on the planet. And you know what? You still suck at it. Like it just is. I won't say you suck, but you're not. You're I'm not, not, I'm not saying you suck at it personally. I'm saying the patient is not, not getting optimal care quality. And even, well, I mean, even if you talk to a lot of critical care transport folks, they'll tell you machines are, they're not the best either. They, they mess it up too. Yeah. So they're, that's why those guys and gals, those nurses and medics that are doing the interfacility critical care or even seeing critical care stuff, they're always monitoring those vents. You have to monitor the vent. It's a critical aspect of monitor, running it's, a vent. You have to watch it. It's just like if you're doing it manually, you've got to make adjustments, you right? You can kill people with these things quite right. effectively. So, yeah. Uh, so, diatribe over. Nah, I got another one coming. <laughs> yeah, so using... I'm brewing another one. <laughs> using some sort of mechanical ventilator device, transport ventilator, is almost mandatory. It's almost it's as close as like a requirement for a vent as you can probably I find will make, in, in pre-hospital EMS. In my personal opinion, it is mandatory. Like in my personal opinion, it is it's a mandatory piece of equipment that your agency should have. Now I get it. A lot of us have agencies that don't have big budgets, and because the very low frequency of the need, don't invest in the device. Which mm -hmm. at a certain level, I fully understand, and I and I get where they're coming from. But at the same time, if you invested in just one, right? Make sure that your, your ALS providers that are using it know how it works and train. The day you need that thing, holy cow. 
right? You're going to be so worth every one of those 60,000 pennies you spent on it or more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not buying one for 60 K, but that's beside the point. So, which brings us to the, but I'm just hoisting, or what if I'm doing a tech rescue and I'm riding the basket up because that looks cool, Uh right? We uh, posted some pictures a while ago. Mike and I were out helping out with some tech rescue training for a bunch of folks and you see some cool pictures. Maybe we'll put some more out there. Probably not, but they're neat. Yeah. Yeah. That makes for great pictures. It's fun to do, but the reality is, and Mike and I have had a lot of debates around the, uh, we'll call it the, the fireside with other providers about the ability to provide patient care when you're riding a basket, whether it's on a hoist or on some sort of test rescue thing. And that's my opinion of basically the only thing you can do is stare at your patient's face and keep Watch an eye them on die. them. Because yeah. if you are having to, especially if you're being hoisted or hauled, we'll say, in a technical rescue, up some sort of vertical or near vertical face, and you're being raised or lowered, you're managing the basket and you're not able to, again, adequately monitor ventilations. Your patient is all kinds of strapped in because safety and stuff, which is appropriate. I don't, I don't care about them being strapped in. I have a but, little bit of experience in the vertical environment. The minute you're doing anything else, you're not managing the bag. He you is can't. an ITRA level three certified oh. instructor. <laughs> there it is. There it is. I knew it was coming eventually. JB, you're welcome. And he's um, got a patch. I have a patch. Um, no, the reality is if you're tethered to the, like, there's all kinds of cool guy shots out there. Oh yeah. I'm just, screw it. We're just doing this live or ad hoc. So I'm just going to, here comes rant number two. <laughs> um, I've done a lot of vertical rescue work in my day. Back in the day when I first learned it, right? It was kind of commonplace. The patient was supine or laying down. The attendant was strapped to the basket. Horizontal We've developed baskets. all kinds of great ways to go above the basket, go below the basket, put your feet in different places to manage whether the basket's scraping on the wall or not, how to do the transitions at the edge, all of these things. The end result is all of them take time. Mm. I'm now of the opinion that the best thing you can do for a patient is to haul them in an upright fashion and climb a rope next to them, which completely goes out the window the minute you have to squeeze a bag because you need your own hands to climb your own damn rope. So now you got to get attached to the patient. The only way you could potentially even theoretically, and I'm not sure this is even possible, but I might test it someday, is have somebody in a vertical orientation be straddling the basket Mm -hmm. with your weight attached above their head Mm -hmm. and be walking while squeezing the bag. But that only works until you get to an edge transition and then you're hosed. Yes. And that's worse than getting out the back of the ambulance, transitioning to your cot. Because trans- an edge transition, a fast edge transition, four to six minutes. I say still takes a couple minutes. Yeah. And that's with, that's an that's ideal like setup. Ideal setup, super skilled people, yeah. lots of experience. Most of them take longer. Yeah. Right. No. And so, and that's, the th- and even still like, okay, what about hoisting a helicopter? There's not much of an edge transition and blah, blah, blah. You're still hanging off the hoist next to your patient. Yeah. Yeah. There should be other people managing taglines to help reduce spin, et cetera, because there's not much you can do about that. Dude, we've both hung from helicopters. I say, but that's, yeah, Mike and I have. All both, you're doing is thinking about hanging from the damn helicopter. Yeah. So you're you just know? watching the helicopter. You're, you're looking at your patient now and again, but you're kind of watching the skid approach. But and that's make the thing sure you don't do other things. Hell yeah. Know? Once you get closer, trying to position yourself so you're in the right position so that the crew can bring you aboard, et cetera. The crew we hoist with, like, I've had this conversation with them. Yeah. Their position is we don't, we just stop bagging and hope oh, for the best. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, and again, your chances, your ability to do this effectively are greatly diminished. Now we're not saying that you can't squeeze the bag now and again, or you can even pretend to count to six or whatever your rate's going to be and squeeze, but it's 
it's not good volume. It's, it's you're, yeah, you're it's, not, it's yeah. not going to be it's, ideal. It's, I mean, did you tug a little too hard? Did you displace the tube? I mean, remember, especially paramedics, like with an intubation, how many centimeters does that thing have to move before you're wrong? Right? Just a couple. Just a couple. Right? And you might not notice that because if you've super taped around that thing to prevent the dislodgement, you might not see the numbers have shifted and yeah. that the tube tamer is now pulled to the side and you've actually completely dislodged. Mm-hmm. I mean, best case would be, oh, you're now a right men's stem. Well, cool. You're at least in the lungs and they're getting oxygen. Right? Yeah. But very seldom do tubes get shoved deeper in this environment. It's usually it's usually, it's usually worst case scenario, right? Yep. And again, there's a lot of opinions on this. This is just Mike and I based on our experiences. I look forward to all the feedback on the social medias from all six of our listeners. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if you, especially for those of you that work in this environment, like if you do vertical work and you have found a way to, and I will say with a 90% reliability, a legit 90%, not huh. we think it's 90%, but you've actually tested this event. We'd, we'd love to hear what your techniques are because I would love to go and play with them. The reality um, is bagging somebody while they're in motion. Yeah. And even like walking to an ambulance or going from an ambulance to a helicopter and just trying to maintain from, yeah, going proper timing. Yeah, going and rate from airway and volume. C out the back of the ambulance into the ED yeah. is, it's hard. is tricky. You know, and people yeah. end up, you have to stop for a couple of seconds almost every time. Like it happens. We, we know that, right? But the problem is, is a hoist takes several seconds right? Unless it's a very, very short hoist. But if you're hoisting, it's usually because the tree cover doesn't allow people to land and you've got 60 some. Which also means there's a whole bunch of other complexities that have cable that has to go up. And even if we get rid of the complexities, just the time alone of being hoisted takes several seconds. Mm -hmm. Getting hoisted up, even a shorter 50, 60 foot vertical, near vertical environment takes minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, there are some places that aren't wooded or heavily rugged terrain where you can pull up in a truck and you've got a cool... Like Arizona? Yeah, like Arizona places. And you can break out mechanical like winches and it's just mm-hmm. an electric machine that's like nonstop. It's not human horsepower pulling ropes. It's, mm-hmm. it's a machine, which Probably most do, people... Yeah, yeah, that's a separate discussion. Yeah. But look, it's... <laughs> We can belabor this forever. We're yeah. probably going to hang up the... Or I'm going to hit the stop button and we're just going to stop recording in a minute. But... The reality is you cannot bag somebody and motate in a wilderness environment. Said it again. Okay. Move. You can't move in a wilderness environment <laughs> and properly bag somebody. Luckily, luckily, very rarely are people injured badly enough in the woods, in my experience, that they need to have their airway fully managed. Mm-hmm. Well, eh, it's a medicine podcast. I'll just say it. Typically, if they're that bad off, they're dead before I got there. Well, right. That's what it's I, a recovery. That's where and I was going to go It's next. creepy and it, it's... It's people don't like to hear it, but the reality is that if they're that jacked up from whatever happened, mm-hmm. that they're calling for help and help has arrived and they were in need of respiratory support, they're probably in need of respiratory support before our arrival. Yeah. And in that, I mean, in that case, they probably didn't get the help they needed in the time they required it. No. And that's, that's where I was going to kind of close with some of this is that's why I say it's a very, for the most part, low frequency requirement for a mm-hmm. lot of folks that work in the wilderness and austere environment. Again, it happens. We've known people who have had to do, mm-hmm. you know, intubations and stuff in the middle of the woods because the patient, that's what they needed. I almost had to last year. Yeah, we had that patient that we've kind of talked around several times. Maybe we'll do an episode to actually discussing that operation. Probably a good idea. We, uh, but, but to but the, have, intu- if I would have intubated on the rock face, hanging from a rope in that environment, that would have been a once in a career thing. Well, yeah. Right. Well, and that's the thing. And, and, and people are going to ask, well, why didn't you intubate? And we actually got that question because I made a presentation of this not too long ago 
about that rescue. And the patient at the time was maintaining their own airway yep. and was satting well. They were ventilating appropriately. It was not ideal. No, they weren't perfect. Obviously, they were. Neither was where we were, Sean. Well, and again, yeah, it goes to the fact that we were both hanging on ropes and not in the most ideal circumstance, but that patient in advanced airway would have been appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, but our situation, the decision not to, I think, was the correct one. Mm -hmm. And there were some other concerns we had with doing that. And again, if we actually discuss that case, you will get into it. But that was like one of the few times in this world environment, because if you think about it, for most of us that work, especially in the United States, around the various wilderness environments, national parks, state parks, local recreation, whatever outdoor stuff it is, these severely injured people, it's usually from pretty significant falls, mm -hmm. right? If they're involved in a motor vehicle accident, they're on a roadway of some sort where motorized vehicles can get to them quickly and you mitigate a lot of these issues just like you would with a regular ambulance service. Mm-hmm. And so these folks that take these high falls, their injuries are such that, yeah, by the time we get to them, because again, everything takes longer in the wilderness, I can drive my ambulance or truck to a trailhead fairly quickly. But then once that backpack is on and now it's foot power and it's two miles even mm -hmm. or more into the backcountry, a lot of time has gone by. And especially where Mike and I work, Cell service is most definitely not guaranteed, as it is with most wilderness areas. You but, know, so it's somebody running down trail till they find cell service, makes a call. The game of tag begins about actual location. And yeah, a lot of times the person that intubation or other advanced airway stuff was going to be most beneficial. By the time you get there, it's kind of like, oof. Yeah. I started this work in 2001. It's, it, we're not there. So I have maybe seen half a dozen patients in my 20 plus years of doing this that required advanced airway care and received it all the way to the road. Mm. It's not a common event. It's, it's not a common event. No. However, if you're in a position where you think you might need to be able to do it, then a bag valve mask is not the appropriate tool. It just is. Yeah. And, and again, that's what Mike and I are left with. And it is what it is. We advocate for getting a compact transport ventilator. Yeah. I've not received love yet, but put it in terms for most of our, our urban listeners the traumatic arrest, right? Whether it's from a vehicle or something else. Probably the best way, the right? best analogy. Because really, this is what we're talking about mm -hmm. is you get it on a traumatic scene arrest. And it, it essentially, it's a traumatic arrest due to, you know, multi-systems trauma, blah, 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 that you're going to only work it so long on scene and you might choose to intubate just to give them the best shot. But then, I mean, that's why most multi- yeah, when, when blood's pouring out of their abdomen into more their, or out of their aorta into their abdomen. Traumatic like, arrests only get a, 10 to 15 minute work time. And if you don't get pulses, then you call it. Well, essentially think about that in the back country. It's that's it. I mean, you can't work a major code like that beyond a reasonable 30 minutes. I mean, no, let's be honest. It's not happening. So, so this is a very, very low frequency event. This is more low frequency than carrying dead people out of the world. Yeah. I, that's probably very, very true. So this is probably the thing we, <laughs> this is the irony of this job, right? Oh, we don't do that very often. Well, that's the thing you should train for the most. Yeah. That's the, that's why we're having this conversation now. Yeah. Right. We haven't, I haven't done this shit in forever. Like I haven't had to manage an airway in the woods for quite some time, but it's yeah. the thing I think about because that's the thing I have to be prepared to do because it turns out I don't do it very often and I need to have a plan and a methodology for it. And I would say from my personal opinion, again, airway management in the wilderness is the most challenging thing as a paramedic. Oh, for sure. 
right? Because hemodynamics, we have where we're at <clears throat> pretty reliable and you know, obviously weather dependent access to flight programs mm-hmm. and the HEMS based ones all have blood. Mm-hmm. So if we get them to them quick enough, they can get blood going so we can start them on crystalloids. Mm-hmm. Yes, we know it's not ideal. The Whatever. research also shows if I'm not flooding with five liters, it's okay, it's people. Fine. It's okay. It's and Mike and I don't even care that much because the reality is- Because we're in the freaking woods. You get two liters from me and it hasn't fixed your problem. Nothing I'm going to do for you is going to fix that problem, right? But, you know, other medication, depending on what their injury illness is, that's not so big a deal. I mean, there's, there's concerns you've heard us talk about, but airway management is it's hard. the one thing that is, in my opinion, the most challenging aspect of the severely injured patient in the austere environment. Yep. So. I don't even care if you're at a base camp on, on Denali. Oh, Denali doesn't really have base camps. But well, anywhere. Like Everest, right? Yes. Like, even in a clinical setting, in a tent somewhere. Yeah. It's one of the more complex things you're going to do. Now you're much better set than say anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even a remote clinic, if it's got power and, and again, if it's got a vent mm-hmm. that it helps, it goes a long way. So anyway, anyway, I think we've, yeah. So it's a, uh, it's a extremely low frequency event. It is something you should think about. Absolutely. Primarily because though it's low frequency and it doesn't happen very often, when it does happen, that patient still deserves the best chance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, Even if the chance is low, right? right? I had that debate with somebody the other day. They said to me, well, you know, the reality is in the woods, like if they get pretty jacked up and they need severe help, like they're or extreme help, they're probably going to be dead. And my response was, yep, probably. However, my job is to give them the best chance at survival. Yep. It is not to write them off because of their injuries. It's to try to as hard as I can to mitigate whatever I can to give them a fighting chance, even if that chance is only 10%. Yeah. So, so hopefully this is somewhat useful. Yeah. That takes me back to an analogy. I had uh, one of my bosses many moons ago went with, when he's trying to motivate people. Mm. It was do stuff now. Sports teams don't play to finish. They play to win. Mm-hmm. Right. So as a paramedic, it's the same thing. If you're yeah. not playing to win, if you're not playing to save the life for these critical patients, don't show up. Don't show up. Right. So if you're just showing up going, eh, not going to make it anyway. Dude, like, come on. Patients deserve better. Is this what I'm supposed to make the shitty joke? I should probably be a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> FYI, Sean loves nurses. <laughs> fine, fine people out there. I love nurses too. I would be a nurse, but I don't have the patience. God bless you all, yeah. because I would murder people. I've thought about nursing school, but that's I, a whole different conversation. Yeah, so, I, did, I did too, but I realized I don't have the patience. Yeah. Well, the patience. <laughs> I see what you did there. Dad jokes on EMS on the mountain. You're welcome. I'm hanging up now. That we have this time. Bye. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode. Thanks for joining us, and until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.